The part of the Bible we are going to study this morning is in the book of James, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Here the Bible tells us, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among all our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind but no man can tame the tongue it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus... No spring yields both salt water and fresh. Here in the book of James, in this entire book, God tells us that we need to know things, specific things, for practical day-to-day -day living as Christians. God tells us some things we need to know for the daily work of Christian living. Now, this letter is especially addressed to Christians. In chapter 1, verse 1, James writes, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. That's how he begins this letter. It might be interesting to note that many, if not most scholars, accept the book of James as the first book in the New Testament to be written. And when he, he says to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, he is referencing the sons of Jacob, who became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's, he's talking about the Jewish people. These were God's people. These were the people God rescued from Egypt. And when James says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, he begins his letter with a greeting that will have special meaning for those Christians who fled Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen. These Christians took their children 
and all, the, all of their belongings were whatever they were able to escape with, and they, they escaped Jerusalem and fled to Syria and Egypt and Asia and Africa and even Europe. The, these Christians were persecuted. They had to escape to foreign countries and strange cities. And in that condition, they were poor. Most importantly, and that's the reason this letter was written. That's the reason God provided for the writing of this letter. Most importantly, these scattered Christians, scattered in various continents and countries, did not have an apostle. You see, they didn't have the New Testament either. The apostles had remained in Jerusalem even during the hardest persecutions. Now, these scattered Christians had the Old Testament, but they did not have all the teachings and writings about Jesus. And without the apostles, they somehow needed to learn how to live as followers of Christ, and not only how to live as followers of Christ, but how to live as followers of Christ in a hostile world to which they fled. It was important, especially important that they learn how to live spiritual lives in the world. Because in living those lives, they were going to demonstrate to a pagan world, a dark world, the presence and the life of the living God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. So, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James, the earthly brother of Jesus, writes this letter to give the early Christians the scattered, persecuted church, practical instructions for living the Christian life. Here in chapter 3, verse 1, James gives us a warning about wanting to become teachers. Then in verse 2, he begins talking about spiritual maturity. Now, where Jesus talks about being born again, that's when God saves us. And that's a good image because we're baby Christians. Well, it doesn't matter how old you are, you're a baby Christian. You could be 45 like I am, and you'd still be a baby Christian. And, but we have to grow up as Christians. And what the Holy Spirit was about here in this early writing was to give some very specific instructions for growing up as a Christian, spiritual maturity. In verses 3 through 12, James gives us instructions about the use of our tongues, how we talk. Obviously, teachers must be spiritual grown-ups. They must be spiritually mature uh, because they have the responsibility of helping others grow up as Christians. They do that by preaching and teaching the Word of God. In fact, the purpose of teachers is to, just, is to do just that, to help us grow up as Christians. But these instructions here in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3 are meant for every Christian. The overriding theme of these 12 verses is that a Christian's words should show that God has given him or her a new heart. That's the major point of this part of the Bible, and that is the number one central point, theme, big idea of the sermon today. 
and that is that a Christian's words should show that God has given him or her a new heart. <clears throat> now, the first thing we discover in verse 2 is that spiritual maturity starts with striving to control the tongue. Spiritual growth begins with godly speech, learning to speak in a godly way, with, with thoughts and words that honor God, that reflect the power of God in our lives. In verse 2, James writes, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in the word, that is what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now the word perfect means complete and mature. It doesn't mean sinless. It means complete, grown up, mature. So if we get control of what we say, we are or if we're striving to get control of what we say, we are growing up spiritually. And the more we get control of our speech, the more mature that we come to be, the more grown up we come to be as followers of Christ. So the first step in correcting everything else in our lives, that is keeping our bodies and behavior in check, is to get control of our mouths. Secondly, the second point in this part of the text is that we, if we control our talk, we can control our walk. If we can control our talk, we can control our walk. Our tongues control the direction of our lives. Look at what James says in verse 3 through the first half of verse 5. There he writes, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Here, the Bible tells us that the tongue is like a bit in the mouth of a powerful horse. A bit is a piece of metal that goes in the horse's mouth. Pieces of leather are tied to the metal, and the rider pulls on that to guide the horse. This little piece of metal in the horse's mouth can make more than a thousand pounds of muscle and bone with a very little brain to go anywhere you want it to go. And I preached this sermon one time, and after the service, uh, a man spoke to me and he said, horses are very smart. I didn't argue with him. And he, happened to be, he happened to be a trainer for racehorses at Santa Anita Raceway in, in California. I lived in California at the time. But the fact is that the brain of a horse is about the size of a walnut like that. Everything that horses do that looks so smart is inbreeding. Uh, quarter horses for running. For, uh, running. Uh, cutting horses for cutting cattle. It's, it's all inbreeding. Anyway, this little piece of metal, this bit, can keep the horse on the racetrack to finish the race 
or it can keep the horse going down the right road, pulling the heavy load, even when the side roads lead to water and green grass. Also, verse 4 tells us that the tongue is like a rudder on a big ship. This little piece of wood or metal at the back of the ship can make the ship stay on course in the middle of storms and in the face of mighty waves and winds. Now think about that. Think about that in applying it to the tongue. How in the face of great storms, the tongue, the voice, the word is powerful. Think about Winston Churchill in World War II. We will fight them on the landings. We will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them in the streets. We will fight them in the hills. We will never surrender. And you know, England didn't surrender under incredible, incredible pressure. His voice rallied a nation to fight and keep on fighting. You see, the language we use, our tongues, our words, has great power over our own lives and over the lives of others. A man named Adolf Hitler used the incredible power of words to incite a war lust in the people of Germany. His speeches were hypnotic. I don't speak German, but I've, I've watched his speeches on television, and just listening to them and watching him, him speak is hypnotic. Even if you don't understand German, his speeches were hypnotic, and Hitler plunged the world into a frenzy of war and slaughter the world has never seen before or since. He used the power of his tongue for evil. A man named Peter was a simple fisherman. Jesus made him a follower and an apostle. After Jesus rose into heaven, Peter was one of those into whom the Holy Spirit entered while they prayed in an upper room. When Peter preached his first message of the gospel of Christ, 3,000 people were saved at one time. And God established the first local Christian church in Jerusalem. From that church, the good news of Jesus would be preached in Judea and Samaria and throughout the world, all the way to Bonham, Texas. Peter used the power of his tongue for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, Christians must keep the horse of our promises and vows and responsibilities on the hard road, even when the load is heavy. We must hold the ship of our lives on course through storms and trials and testing and temptation. And our speech is powerfully, powerfully in, engaged in doing that. As we read this part of the Bible, clearly the Lord wants us to understand that the tongue has great power. Our words have great power. Great power to control. But he also wants us to know that the tongue has great power to destroy. In the last half of verse 5, James writes, See how great a forest a little fire kindles. The, the tongue can destroy like a forest fire. That's what the Holy Spirit of God is telling us. He's telling us, Christian, your tongue can destroy like a forest fire. 
but the power of the tongue is even greater than a forest fire because the power of the tongue is spiritual and eternal. It just doesn't burn down some trees and leave ashes. It affects the souls and hearts and lives of people. So the third point that James makes then is that hell on the mouth, hell on earth comes from hell in the mouth. Hell on earth comes from hell in the mouth. You may have heard someone say, say that or something like that. You may have heard someone say that that person makes his life a hell on earth. That my boss makes my life a hell on earth or something similar to that. Most of us understand what that means. It means living a life full of conflict and anger. It means a life of emotional and even physical pain and heartbreak. Lots of people say hell on earth to describe a home that is full of rage and anger and cursing and fighting. When I grew up, my parents weren't Christians. Our home was full of anger and arguments and conflict and bitterness and hard feelings every day. It was a hell on earth much of the time. In verse 6 we read, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. When James calls the tongue a world of iniquity, he means that it stands for everything that God hates. I find it interesting that in the whole Bible, in all of the Bible, only the tongue is called a world of iniquity. No other part of the body is called a world of iniquity. In fact, no other group of people is called a world of iniquity. Only the tongue, our capacity for speech, is labeled a world of iniquity in the Bible. Have you ever thought of your tongue as a world of iniquity? Most of us just say, well, I didn't mean that. Or they just didn't understand. We don't think of the evil that our words produce. Well, God says that is exactly what our tongues are. In fact, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Our words is what defiles us, not what we eat or drink. Jesus made this statement after some of the Jews accused the disciples of being spiritually unclean because they did not wash their hands before they ate. So Jesus declares that what makes a person spiritually unclean is what comes out of his mouth, not what goes into his mouth. The things we say do the work of evil in the world. And it goes farther than that, and I'll explain it in a moment, because it's not just the words come, that come out. It's where those words come from. So in a very real way, hell on earth comes from hell in the mouth, and that's what James says here. 
The fourth lesson for us, the fourth point of this message, is that hell in the mouth comes from hell in the heart. So, hell on earth comes from hell in the mouth, and hell in the mouth comes from hell in the heart. Look at what James writes in the second part of verse 6. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. What can James possibly mean? How does the tongue defile the whole body and set on fire the course of nature? When James talks about the tongue, he is talking about our whole system and process of speech. It includes our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, our dreams, our plans, how we think about ourselves, how we think about others, the memories that we let come into our mind and camp out there for an evening, for an hour or a minute. It includes all of those things as well as our words. That's how the tongue corrupts the whole person. You see, James isn't just talking about this physical organ, the tongue in our mouth. And he's not just talking about the words that come out of our mouths. He's talking about that whole system of who we are that produces our speech, our feelings, desires, thoughts, plans, imaginations. Our personalities are corrupted and our lives are corrupted by what we think and what we feel. When we say something mean, it is because we first of all have a mean feeling and a mean thought that tells our mouths what to say. When we do something selfish, it is because we first of all have a selfish feeling and a selfish thought that tells our hands what to do. When we gossip about someone, it is because we first of all have a desire to say something bad or something enticing or exciting or secretive about someone. And that bad thought tells our mouths what to say. When the Bible talks about the heart, most of the, of the time it is talking about what we call our minds or hearts. That is our whole system of thinking and feeling and understanding. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Here in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus tells us this incredible truth about the connection between the heart and the mouth. Beginning in verse 18, Jesus says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. So the hell in the mouth comes from the hell in the heart, and the hell in the mouth creates hell on earth. Fifthly, then, we discover in these verses that hell in the heart comes from hell itself. Hell in the heart comes from hell itself. 
The very last phrase in verse 6 says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. The word hell, the word which is translated hell, in Greek is Gehenna, and it refers to a continually burning landfill outside Jerusalem. It's just a big trash dump that's always on fire. Jesus used the word hell, or Gehenna, to describe the future place of torment for those who reject him. Hell means the opposite of heaven. It is the home of everything that is evil and ungodly and unholy. Hell is the glory of the devil. It is not only the place of never-ending torment, it is also the source of every plan and desire to rebel against God. So for James to say that the tongue is set on fire by hell means that our minds and hearts are continually smoldering with rebellion against God and against God's creation. Continually smoldering with opposition to God. That's why we curse the other drivers. That's why we complain about each other. That's why we tell lies or half-truths. That's why we explode in angry anger. That's why we speak with sharp voices and snap at each other. That's why our minds tell our hands and feet to go our way and rebel against God's way. James punctuates this truth in the last half of verse 8, where he writes, The tongue is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Have you ever thought of your tongue as an unruly evil full of deadly poison? This is the shocking truth that we must confront. What we think and what we say is evil and deadly, like a wild animal prowling around looking for something to kill. Let me repeat that. What we think and what we say can be evil and deadly, like a wild animal prowling around looking for something to kill. Our natural response is to deny this truth. Someone might say, oh, I'm not like that at all. I just think sweet thoughts and say sweet things all the time. But the Bible tells us that sweet thoughts and sweet words are not part of human nature. In Psalm 10, verses 4 and 7, the Bible tells us the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. And when God is talking about the wicked here, he's not talking only about rapists and robbers and murderers. He's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about sinful man, corrupted in our nature, the very nature of who we are. When the first man and woman disobeyed God, and opposed God and turned against the goodness of God. 
The entire human nature became corrupted and opposed to God. All of us in our human nature are like this, full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under our tongues are trouble and iniquity. That's in our human condition. This is the, the way our human nature functions that's still in us. You see, God's work in the believer is what the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification is just a big word that means getting rid of sin, killing sin, one or two at a time. And you know something about sin, the killing of sin? It's not like killing anything else. <clears throat> you don't kill sin by a quiet, lethal injection. You know, you have to grab it by the neck, neck choking it, and drag it out in the street naked and beat it to death and leave it there and realize that you're going to have to do it again and again and again until it gets weaker and weaker and weaker and doesn't come back to life again in your life. It is a ferocious daily battle with sin. In our human nature, we don't have the capacity for good. In our human nature, we are not capable of thinking or saying anything that is not spotted by selfishness or dishonesty or a desire to manipulate or to get our way or to express our pride, if not to anybody else, to ourselves. So much of the time, the conflicts we have in life are conflicts with ourselves because we think more highly of ourselves than we should and things don't work out to affirm that we are as great as we think we are. Our wives don't always tell us we are as great as we think we are. Our husbands don't always tell us we're as great as we think we are. And just the events in our lives prove to us that we're not. But we go right on operating by trying to build that pride back and keep that pride alive. Sin and death entered the world by words. Think about that for a moment. Sin and death entered the world by words spoken by Satan disguised as a serpent and by thoughts in the mind of Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we're told how the devil deceived her. You see, the devil lied to Eve, and Eve bought the lie. The devil's words affected her thinking. So she looked at the fruit. What did she do? She thought it looked good. She thought it would give her wisdom. And she ate it and gave some to Adam, who thought that it would be all right for him to eat it. And both of them, because of the lie of Satan, thought that it would make them like God. And they could decide what was good and evil for themselves. That's still the way we are as human beings. What do we want to do? We want to decide what's good and evil for ourselves. That's why growing up, is so difficult is because there comes a point in our lives when we want to decide. All the time we've been growing up, mom and daddy have been saying, 
this is what's good and this is what's bad, this is what's good and this is what's bad. And then we reach a point in our lives where we, we want to decide what's good and evil. It's, it's still there. Our human nature is still with us. Adam and Eve's thoughts were evil and led to evil actions. Their actions had deadly consequences for the entire human race. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we are told that through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So sin and death came to us by words and thoughts. Even as Christians, we are full of wicked words that wound and kill. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, the Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth that when he comes to visit them, and remember he's writing to a church. He says when he comes to visit them, he is afraid that he will find contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Tumults are storms in relationships. These things are all thoughts and words that tear people down and destroy relationships and kill the church. Notice everything that Paul lists is words. He doesn't say he's afraid that he's going to find people stealing things. He doesn't say he's afraid that he's going to come and find people just drunk all over the floor. He doesn't say he's afraid he's going to come and find people beating each other up. He says he's afraid they're going to be using these kinds of words. That's what he's afraid of. If Paul was afraid these things might happen in the church of Corinth, we must understand that these things are prowling around in our own minds, waiting for a chance to strike. Because we are polluted by sin, our human nature produces wicked thoughts, wicked words, and wicked actions that wound and destroy and kill. In the 1960s, I wasn't alive then, but in the 1960s, there was a popular song that captured some of the truth about how we think and how we talk. It goes something like this. You talk too much, you worry me to death. You talk too much, you even worry my pet. You just talk, 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 you talk too much. You talk about people that you don't know. You talk about people wherever you go. You just talk, 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 talk. You talk too much. Here are some examples of things and these are just a few examples of things we say or think. Why did you do it that way? Can't you chew with your mouth closed? Can't you do something better? I don't like people who can fill in the blank. Eat Italian food. Drink Mountain Dew. Wear funny clothes. Ah, I don't like Democrats. Or Republicans, for that matter. You don't know what you're talking about. 
Will you just be quiet and leave me alone? Shut up. Stop it. I mean, right now. And let's not forget the silent treatment. Lots of time, silence shouts our anger and meanness more than any words. If we were honest, we could all add to this list some of our own ugly and unkind thoughts and words. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we're told to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. But how can we do that? How can we stop this fire of hell that burns in our hearts, smolders in our hearts and minds and desires and thoughts? How can we put out this evil that flows out of our mouths. Notice the sixth thing James teaches us in the first half of verse 8, where he tells us that no man can tame the tongue. The point James makes here is not that the tongue cannot be tamed. It is that we cannot tame the tongue by human effort. James makes this point by comparing the tongue to wild animals. He says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. You see, Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God gave Adam authority to rule over all the creatures. And mankind never lost that ability. We still rule over every creature on the face of the earth. No other creature has the capacity for thought and speech. Speech is strictly a human ability. Regardless of what the people say who think dolphins speak, they don't. Or adobo monkeys, they don't speak. They make sounds, but it's not speech. It is this ability to think, plan, decide, and communicate that makes it possible for us to control wild animals of every kind. It is more powerful than anything in the nature of animals. But man let the words of Satan grow into thoughts in his mind. Those thoughts led to sin. And man lost all authority over his own thoughts and words. Man could still tame wild animals, but he could no longer tame his tongue. Now, James is not saying that the tongue cannot be tamed. By saying that no man can tame the tongue, James points to man's inability and to God's power. So in the seventh and final lesson for us here in this part of the Bible, we learn that God tames the tongues of his people. God tames the tongues of his people. The Holy Spirit is our wild tongue tamer. In verses 9 through 12, James turns our attention to the fact that our speech can be used for both good and evil. In verse 9 we read, With it, the tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or the likeness or image of God. 
You see, we can both bless and curse with our mouths, but cursing or talking badly to or about others should not be part of the Christian life. You see, talking badly about what God has made is the same thing as talking badly about God. And I don't care who you're talking badly about. All men have been made in the image of God. All men are created in the image of God. So our capacity for thought, speech, planning, decision-making, love, personality, and spiritual life are all characteristics of God. So when we speak badly to or about someone else, we are criticizing or harming what God made, and that offends God, and that is sin. Specifically, we're violating the ninth commandment. We're not to bear false witness against others. Now, of course, that means we're not to lie in court about somebody or to lie in any, uh, about somebody in any other way, but it means much more than that. And on the positive side, it means that we are to protect the reputations of others. We are not to tear down the reputations of others. It is one thing... Let's think about politicians for a moment. It is one thing to criticize and attack a policy or a decision. It is another thing to attack the man. There's a difference. If we say that policy is terrible, it's going to destroy the country or the state, or that decision uh, is going to harm the nation because it's going to draw us into an unprofitable war, then we can certainly make those judgments. We have the liberty to make those judgments. But to say that the politicians doing that are stupid, now you're talking about an attack on the man, and we should not do that. Or, however we want to attack him personally, We cannot truly sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, if our speech is full of criticism and anger and disrespect and bitterness and unkindness and sharp words, all of which attack what God has made and provided. James illustrates this truth by describing a spring of water and the nature of fruit trees. In verse 11, he writes, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? When I read this verse, I remembered an experience I had many years ago. As a college student in Wichita, Kansas, <clears throat> one summer I worked in a peach orchard. And early in the morning, one of my jobs was to take a tractor with a trailer and irrigation pipes on the trailer and take it out into the peach orchard and move the irrigation pipes uh, around in the peach orchard. I did that one morning, drove out into this particular orchard, and underneath all of the trees was a shaded part where the leaves of the trees shaded normally. But this day, I drove into the peach orchard, and underneath the trees, this circle wasn't shade, it was green. The leaves had fallen off the trees. All of the peach trees in this orchard. And I had just watered them the day before. I went back to my boss, the foreman, and told him, and we went out and looked, and he went and got the owner of the orchard. 
And after a week or two, in working with the agricultural department, they discovered that an oil company had drilled an oil well a couple of miles away, and sitting on top of the oil reserve was this large reservoir of salt, salt water. And on top of the salt water was the freshwater reservoir for that part of the country. When they drilled down, they drilled down through the rock that separated the fresh water from the salt water, and the salt water poured out into the fresh water supply. And the salt water was then sprayed on all of the peach trees by the pipes, irrigation pipes I had laid the day before. Of course, salt water isn't good for trees, and the, tree, the leaves fell off the trees. The entire water supply was polluted with salt water. After the salt water polluted the well and the peach orchard, it was impossible to pump good water out of the well. What James is telling us is that good words do not come from a bad mouth any more than good water comes from a bad well. In verse 12, he makes the same point by using the example of fruit trees. He asks, can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both water, salt water and fresh. Here, James uses the kind of example he heard Jesus use. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 16, 17, and 18, Jesus says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. In other words, James says that you can recognize followers of Jesus by how they talk. Now, Christians are not perfect, but if the Holy Spirit of God lives in us, if we have hearts that are filled with the love of God, our words will show the presence of God in us. And as we learn more about God, and as the Spirit of God applies the Word of God to us more and more, our words will change more and more to display the presence of God in us. The really deep truth here is that our words show what is in our hearts. What is in our hearts is displayed by what comes out of our mouth. What is heard on the outside shows what is on the inside. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil. Of course, as verse 8 tells us, on our own we cannot change the way we talk. But God gives Christians new hearts and new minds. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses, verse 27, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You see, God makes our tongues spread delight instead of death. God gives Christians new hearts, and that is how God changes our speech and tames our tongues. The Holy Spirit gives us new hearts and lives in us. As I said earlier, the Holy Spirit is our wild tongue tamer. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the Bible tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, the Holy Spirit of God produces these things in the lives of Christians. We do not have the capacity to produce these things on our own. This is not the fruit of our human nature or the exercise of our will. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. Notice that part of the fruit is self-control which gives us power to control our thoughts and our words as well as our actions. So how should we as Christians apply this part of the Bible to our lives? Well, firstly, admit to ourselves that our words do not always display the image of God. Admit that many times our motives and thoughts and words are selfish, prideful, full of lust, and they harm others. Second, admit our sin to God and ask Him to help us turn away from it and begin to practice speech that is full of grace and kindness and sweetness and encouragement. We ought to daily get up in the morning and think about how can I talk to my wife or husband in a way that will make them feel really good today? How can I talk to my mother or father or sister or brother in a way that will make them feel really good, that will really encourage them and help them today and help them be happy? That's how we should be thinking. It has to start with our thoughts rather than getting up and thinking, she's in my way, or he did it again, or... Why did you make so much noise last night? We need to discipline ourselves and understand that as we're trying to discipline ourselves, the reason we are is because we've heard this truth from God and the Holy Spirit of God is working in us to apply it. Our mission should be to bring comfort and encouragement and really, happiness and peace to other people by the way we speak. And why? Because God tells us here that's the most powerful thing we do in relation to another person's soul. You know, if I had a lot of money, I could give you a lot of money, but that's not going to do a little tiny thing for your soul. Nothing. Zip. I could buy you a house, give you a new car if I had the money. That's not going to help your soul. That's not going to help your deep, real happiness 
and peace with God. You know what happiness is? It is experienced peace with God. Thirdly, when we do recognize, and we will, that we have spoken wrongly to someone, we need to go ask them for forgiveness, admit it, and ask them for forgiveness. And when we do that, we must forget two words. I meant. Because then we're starting to become defensive. You know, if we've done something that hurt or harmed someone or wasn't or was discouraging, we need to go and say, I said this, please forgive me, I'm sorry. But if we go and say, I said this, and I'm sorry, but what I really meant to say was this, so I'm not as bad as, as I am, and you shouldn't be upset with me because I meant this other thing. See, that's just being defensive. And certainly, we should not say, well, I said that because you did this or that or said this. Now you're blaming the other person for what you said. You just go... Admit it, ask for forgiveness. Fourthly, take God seriously and do what he says. In Romans chapter 12, verse 14, God tells us, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now understand what God is saying here. He's not saying simply, Bless those people you disagree with. Bless those people you're angry with. Bless those people who do things they shouldn't be doing, make bad decisions. He's not simply saying that. He's saying, bless those people who are stealing your property, who are cursing you, who are killing you and your family. That's what he's saying. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. In First Thessalonians five, chapter uh, chapter five, verse eleven, God says, "Comfort each other and edify each other." How do we do that? We do it with our speech. Edify means to build up. Wives, it means you go to your husbands and say, "You're the greatest thing that ever walked on the face of the earth, except for Jesus Christ." And husbands, you go to your wives and you say, you're the greatest thing that ever walked on the face of the earth. It means to edify. I'm being a little facetious, but not completely. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 tells us, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Seasoned with salt. That means people ought to, our, our uh, speech ought to be, uh, ought to taste good. People ought to like to hear it, hear what we say. Finally, the sixth point of the sermon, if you are an unbeliever, there is no self-help for you here. Your only hope is Jesus. You must run to him. It is only God who gives us new hearts and new minds by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God. 
and he gives us faith in Jesus Christ. God shows us we are totally polluted by sin, that our hearts and minds are full of sin. No matter, no matter what we think of ourselves, God ultimately shows us that's what is, fills our hearts and minds. God shows us that we need to be rescued from this sin and the death that causes sin, and he shows us that we cannot rescue ourselves. And if you're not a Christian, that's why you need to turn to Christ. The Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you truly turn to Christ, asking him to forgive you and give you new life and give you faith in Christ, he will do it. And why is that important? Why is that important? Why is it important to be saved? Why is it important to be forgiven? Because there is a God who created everything, and he rules over everything, everything in the universe. And there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to return to earth and judge the world. And those people who belong to God will live with him in resurrected bodies forever on a restored earth. That's why it's important. And the only way that you can be forgiven and have that life with God, reconciled to God, made right with God, is by what Jesus Christ is and what, he done, what he's accomplished. There are two things that are essential to know about being a Christian, about how it is that Jesus saves you. The first is... God never changed his mind from the Garden of Eden. We have to have a perfect life in order to know God. There is no other way. We have to have a sinless life in order to belong to God. But since we're conceived as Christians, since we're Christians, I mean, since we're conceived as sinners, since we're sinners in our human nature, full of sin, how can we ever have a sinless life? Well, we can't, not on our own. But that's what Jesus did. The Son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was not connected to Adam the sinner. So he, wasn't, he didn't have a sinful human nature. And he never sinned. He lived a perfect, holy, perfect life. And God accepts his perfect life in place of the perfect life we need. Are we ever going to have a perfect life on this earth? No. When we stand before God and he says, where's your perfect life? All we can say is, it's Jesus. It's his perfect life that you've given me credit for. That's why Jesus is so important. He had to live a perfect life for God to give us credit for his perfect life. And secondly, it is important to believe in Jesus because when Jesus died, when the Romans nailed him to a cross, it wasn't just the physical death that was important. Oh, that was important. But what was incredibly important was that as, as he hung there, God poured out on him, put on him, all of the judgment and punishment against guilty sinners like you and I were and are. Put it on Jesus. And Jesus, in his human nature, body and soul, suffered the equivalent of an eternity out of hell and got it over with in a few hours. Now that's something more than we can comprehend. And the other part of that that is impossible for us to comprehend is in a way we don't fully understand Jesus suffered the real hell 
in his human nature, and that's separation from God. What's terrible about hell? All, all of the things we think about, pain, torment, agony, loneliness, fire. What's really terrible about hell is no God. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he was experiencing in that moment was the absolute, total judgment of God that you deserve and that I deserve for our sin. And God accepts that for the judgment and punishment we deserve because Jesus had no sin of his own to die for. This is good news. It is the power of God unto salvation. The Holy Spirit applies this to us when he makes us born again and gives us everlasting life. If you're not a Christian, turn from living for sin and trust in Jesus alone to forgive you and make you right with God. Then the Holy Spirit of God living in you will change your desires and your mouth and the words that come from your mouth. If you are a Christian, take God seriously. Start thinking about what's in your thoughts and in your feelings and asking yourself very carefully and very seriously, do my thoughts and feelings and motivations and imaginations honor God? Are these the things that the Bible talks about? Look at your words and ask the same questions. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your good word. Thank you for meeting with us today in a very special way by the presence of your Holy Spirit and by your word. And we ask that you will take the truth of your word and change us, God. Glorify yourself in us so that the joy of who you are might be displayed in us, in our thoughts and feelings and words. Help us honor you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name.